Welcome to the Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli, along with my friend Barry Schuster, the founding editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks very much for asking. I'm looking forward to talking to our special guest today and finding out how they got in the restaurant business, why they got in the restaurant business, and hearing some pearls of wisdom from them uh, that would be useful to our, our listeners today. Absolutely. And we're going to have some fun because we've got a really good show lined up. So uh, grab a drink, make yourself comfortable, and welcome to the Corner Booth. Chris, uh, today we have a very special guest, from my perspective particularly, uh, a, a dear friend, but not only a dear friend, but a, a, an iconic restaurateur, and we're going to talk about his history. Um, I'd like you to meet Arthur Gordon, um, uh, who is the, I'll say, previous owner, uh, but founder of Irregardless Cafe in Raleigh, North Carolina. Arthur, welcome to the Corner Booth. Thanks, Barry. Nice to be here. Arthur, it's wonderful to meet you, and it's great to have somebody from North Carolina, other than Barry, who I have to put up with on a daily basis. Oh, well, <laughs> you, you'll, uh, I'm, a, I'm an acquired taste. You'll, you'll learn to get over that. Um, let me tell you about Arthur. I, uh, when I moved to the Raleigh-Durham area in the mid-'90s, um, Irregardless Cafe and, and Arthur Gordon were already... Um, household names among people who dined out in the area and of course you know the Raleigh-Durham area has exploded in the last several years and, and the number of restaurants and number of celebrated restaurants that have moved in the area and Arthur and Irregardless Cafe have been able to maintain their relevance and their pot in its popularity uh, across generation cross generationally for all these years um, I met Arthur when we had just launched Restaurant Startup and Growth and joined forces with RestaurantOwner.com. I was delighted to meet him. He and I um, are members of the same synagogue, and uh, he's watched my children grow up. In fact, my kids' uh, B'nai Mitzvahs were, uh, the reception was at Irregardless Cafe. But, you know, I, I want to get back to this point that we're talking about a single unit that has become truly an iconic restaurant. And uh, when Arthur... Um, turned over the keys to the restaurant and sold it uh, at the uh, beginning of the year. Um, I would go around talking to people in the industry, talking to people of all ages, and, and they all knew about the transfer. It was They were all following it, and uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who didn't know about Irregardless Cafe or, or even dine there. Um, so Arthur's story is amazing. It, it goes back to the 70s, and... I'm really looking forward to him sharing that story, uh, but I think the thing that our listeners need to take away from this is the power of uh, of being authentic and knowing what you want to do and doing the kind of things that um, are important to you and that that can lead you to uh, some real success. So, Arthur, um, you know, <clears throat> tell us about how you got into this business back in the 70s, what you were thinking, what you wanted to do, and, and why you you took the particular path that you did. Sure thing. Um, well, I had graduated from uh, UNC in Chapel Hill in 1972 with a uh, double major in chemistry and philosophy. And uh, I've always had a, um, a desire to cook. I think the chemistry was is, is an example of, of chemistry. And I wrote to the uh, CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, and uh, wanted to go and get trained as a professional chef. 
And they wrote back and they said they'd love to have me, but they thought it would be better if I had a year's cooking experience before I came and cut my fingers and burnt my hands up in New York, which I thought was a good idea. So I got together with a couple of buddies and we each put in $3,000. So we had a total uh, investment of $9,000. And we found an old dilapidated building on a dirt road that was off the beaten path. And we thought, well, let's just fix it up and I'll work it as a, as a chef for a couple of years and then I'll go get trained as a, as a professional chef and then open a real restaurant. Uh, and needless to say, after 45 years of operating there, regardless, I got the experience in, but uh, I never got trained as a professional chef. I think after but 45 think, years, that's okay. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I did it uh, the other way, right? Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, of course, now I have the, the luxury of looking back on it, and we opened it up as a vegetarian restaurant in 1975. Because there was a vegetarian restaurant in the Chapel Hill area. Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill is uh, is the triangle, and Chapel Hill was where I'd gone to school. And there was a vegetarian restaurant there doing quite well. And then one opened in Durham, and it was doing quite well. So we thought, well, you know, Raleigh is the capital, and at that time the expression was is that you wanted to work in Raleigh, live in Durham, and party in Chapel Hill, <laughs> and. Uh, but as, I guess as soon as I heard the word work, then I knew that was the right place to uh, put a business. So we looked for it. So it's kind of like the old uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland movies. Oh, look, there's an old barn. Let's just put on a show. In the pulled pork capital of the universe, you and a That's couple right. of friends without prior restaurant experience jump in, uh, risk uh, all the money that you have, and go vegetarian. Right. Well, I've always thought of myself as a contrarian. If everybody's going one way, I'm going the other. And the thing that's really uh, screwy for me is, is that I started out as, you know, as an old hippie, make love, not war, and take care of the planet, and sort of counterculture. And then by definition, I've become the establishment. So I'm just trying to figure out when that happened. It must have been while I was asleep or something. <laughs> but, but in spite of the fact that, um, you know, as Chris noted, uh, of course, North Carolina is uh, known for pulled pork barbecue and hush puppies and uh, opening a vegetarian restaurant in the 70s, um, as you know, you know, was sort of counterculture. Um, what I'm hearing is that you still saw a market for what you were doing. You weren't just going into this blindly because, hey, this is really important to me, which I'm sure it is. But um, did you see a market for what you were doing right out of the gates? You bet. You bet. And I think that's the choices that you get to make is, is that if you can target your market um, and, um, and, and take, you know, maybe as Mark Twain said, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and then take a good care of that basket, um, you have a chance to, to grow it and to, um, again, get back to the word targeting to people who were uh, at least somewhat health-oriented. You know, the, the statistics at that time, tobacco was in. At that time, fat, salt, and sugar. We, we, all of these truths we still know to be the case, but the underlying truth of the event is, is, is that the food we were eating at that time was not healthy. And, um, and I always felt that because of the education that's in the three cities with the, uh, the universities, that there were people who could uh, decide for themselves 
what kind of foods they wanted to eat. Now, for our listeners uh, who haven't visited Irregardless Cafe, and, and I've dined there recently, you're looking at a place that, that packs a house. Um, you're seeing people on dates in their 20s, and you're seeing people there with their families in their 60s, 70s, and 80s even. There's live music. Um, the menu does have some beautiful vegetarian dishes, but the place is packed and popular. Um, but let's take us back to the 70s and the early days. What was the development process like? And, you know, when I got there in the 90s, you were already well established. You had ads on NPR, which everybody's familiar with, and, and you were already a, a dining destination. But tell us about the process, both in terms of developing the, you know, the, the restaurant concept, but also your education um, as a restaurateur, you know, what were the or the key points uh, in those early years? Well, you know, I think uh, Joseph Campbell says, you know, you have to follow your bliss. So you have to figure out what it is, what is it that you can do that's going to make you happy. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you have to gain experience and make a lot of mistakes to figure out what it is that you don't want to do. Uh, it may not be clear what you do want to do, but, but every time that you do something, you're going to learn something from it. So for each person, for me in particular, since I like to cook, I could work the kitchen and, the, and then come out into the front of the house. But by having a, a consistent hand in the kitchen, the recipes could be developed. We could orient ourselves to this uniqueness so that there wasn't chicken fat used to cook the vegetables. Um, there, was, there was consistency in the kitchen, and then that leads to your ability to be able to uh, keep it uh, in control in, in a very uh, drama-based business where chefs are, are highly volatile and they, they want to quit and walk out or they hold you hostage or uh, a number of things. And so that sort of always gave me the feeling that no matter what happened, who left, whatever, I could take care of it. I could get out the next day's meal uh, with the help of a few people. And, uh, and so I was never held hostage by my own business. And today, because you have so many moving parts in this business, it's hard to be able to do that. But I would highly recommend that you put yourself into three or four other people's operations before you decide for yourself what's going to work for you, what's going to be your bliss that you would be willing to do you know, morning till night for the next several years. Mm -hmm. And once you figure that out, then you can stay on the path and you have the, the ability to, to be persistent. And uh, because to, you're going to make mistakes. And so the question is, is can you learn from that mistake? Can you, can you do something? That, I guess the strategy I always had was, is what could we do today to make the meal better tomorrow? Not the meal, the experience. Mm -hmm. What could we do to make sure that the customer always felt like he got his money's worth and that, uh, and he felt good about what he was eating and had no reason not to come back. And, uh, you know, as the name Irregardless says, it's kind of, you know, it's a double negative and maybe a double negative is a positive. And my other favorite double negative these days is I can't not do that. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's really what Irregardless came to mean for me. I can't not do it. 
until I decided that I couldn't do it anymore. Good, good points. Really good points. I enjoy listening to the fact that this, you, you know, you have to follow your bliss. You, uh, people are successful when they make their first step based on passion and interest. Um, I really follow what you're saying, how you led with the food that was your strength so that you knew that you could develop from the kitchen to the front of the house. Maybe you could talk about the rest of the initial structure when you first opened the other couple of people or were there other people? What were their responsibilities? So how did you operate with staff, service, management of numbers, all those other things that were new to you then? Right. Well, again, you know, it's like uh, the advantage of, uh, of youth is, is that you don't know all the things that can go wrong. So you'll try things that, you know, haven't got a chance in hell of going straight. But if you follow your bliss, it, it can work out. So in those early days, I had uh, two partners, two friends, and we each put in $3,000, which was a total investment of $9,000. And then we borrowed $9,000 from my mom. So that was all the money that we had. And um, so we literally had to build the structure out uh, all the way from the roof leaking to the foundation and, and putting in the bathrooms. Um, and so it was a lot of sweat equity. And all of us would work our day jobs. And then at 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening, we would come over to the site and work till 6 in the morning. Or not 6, I mean till midnight. Uh, trying to get things done, you know, and you're kind of bleary-eyed. And, you know, I was always hoping that the uh, leprechauns would come in and finish it up. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they never did show up. Um, and But we, you know, we literally built, you know, all the booths and all the, the furniture. The original uh, tables were um, those big wheels that the telephone cables come on, you know, big round wheels. And sure, so we cut spool. some plywood. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> That's right, the spool. So we would cut plywood and put it on top of it and make it look like it was a, a wooden tabletop. But the problem was is you couldn't slide your chair up underneath it because it was the bottom <laughs> yeah. the same size as the top. And and so our idea was is, is that we would we would total the number of hours that the three partners put in. So let's say we all put in um, 50 hours each that week. It would be 150 hours. And let's say that we made $600 that week. Uh, then we would pay ourselves $4 an hour uh, and share it out equally. And one partner was in the kitchen and one partner was out in the dining room. And then I was kind of the swing guy that I would come in and work in the kitchen for, you know, part of the day once we got open and then would move out front and understand the details of the front of the house as well. So I guess from my perspective, I had the luxury of knowing both sides of the job but having a stronger affinity to the back of the house. Were you still on Morgan? And then, yeah, we were still on Morgan Street, which at that time was called Harrison Avenue. And just as we started the construction, the, the city uh, uh, sort of got some federal money and connected Hillsborough Street to Morgan Street, and Harrison Avenue became the, uh, the connector. And uh, we happened to be in a much better location uh, six months after we started, but we didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And in, in that location, that was, was a very different type of area of Raleigh than it is today. I, I believe it was quite a bit different even in the, in the 90s. Um, was there a bit of a build it and they will come type of uh, approach to your marketing where you were doing something unusual and the people who wanted it were going to go there and find you? Correct, correct. I mean, I've always 
believe that people will go out of their way for a good doctor, a good dentist, and a good restaurant because the satisfaction comes in the results and not from the glitz and the glitter. And uh, literally, we were we were the, the dirt road that went to uh, Central Prison. Um, and uh, so in, in a sense, I guess I've, I felt like I've been doing 45 years to life as my <laughs> prison sentence. What, what was the what was a turning point um, for you? You know, was there a year, a month, a moment where, you know, you went from uh, three guys really trying to do something clever and interesting and creative and, and, and scratch out a living to the point where you woke up one morning and said, you know what, we really have something here. Wow. Um, look at what's happened. Uh, how long did that take? And, and what what was that moment and, and what attributed to that turning point? Um, that got you on the road to being, you know, one of the area's iconic uh, restaurants? Well, you know, I guess as uh, Satcho Page used to say, don't ever look back, they might be gaining on you. So the, the, the effort is always for it. What, do I, what can I do today to make it better tomorrow? So it was never, I guess, the point that gave me perspective and allowed me to feel like that this had a chance and that I wanted to continue to do it for as long as it could run was in 1994 we had a uh, fire that burnt the restaurant um, halfway to the ground I guess the front of the building was was intact but the back of the building had burned off and at that point um, it was um, gonna cost I want to say eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars to build back the kitchen and the and to put the space back into play and, and I guess kind of like uh, General MacArthur, I said, there's no question, we're gonna do this. We're gonna, we're gonna return. And, um, and we went through the process, you know, the architect and the building inspectors and the construction delays and all of that kind of stuff. But with the mentality that the, that the insurance money paid half of that, and then I had to sell my house and borrow the rest. But I, I just had a, a, an inner, sensation that this was going to work no matter what and uh, and then I brought all the effort that I could and of course it was totally um, in damaging at the time and out of those ashes came the ability to build back a building where the because I was the chef that the kitchen is the same size as the dining room um, and so there was a building my own prison, but I got to air condition it and make it so that it would be comfortable and had somehow had that attitude that this was going to work no matter what. All I had to do was stay focused and persevere with it. And you and you kept um, some of your key staff on payroll during the rebuilding um, uh, period of that restaurant. and. And, you know, I know you, so I know part of that was driven by the fact that you're, you're loyal to your staff. And we'll talk about some of your philosophies there. But also, I, I was led to believe that you just didn't want to have to go through the process of training everybody again when you already opened the doors. <laughs> could, you, could you talk about that? Well, you know, again, you got to understand that in 1994, there, weren't, there wasn't nearly the going out mentality of restaurants. So there, mainly there were cafeterias in this area. Um, and there were a few. There was a steakhouse and a Chinese restaurant, but there weren't as many restaurants as there are today. So today, I don't know that I could adapt that mentality. But in 1994, the attitude was is that, you know, you're always 
you're always trying to hype up your staff by saying, you know, when the tough, when it gets tough, you can count on me and I can count on you. Um, well, most of the people that were working for me, you know, were living paycheck to paycheck. So there was no way that they could afford to wait uh, until we got it rebuilt to come back on board. So I adopted the attitude that if you would be willing to work for a nonprofit for the same amount of time that you were working for me when we were open, that I would pay you the same wage. And, uh, and then in return, we got to support a nonprofit, which went on to become a really big enterprise in the area today. Uh, but from a marketing point of view, it's certainly what my heart tells me to do. But from a marketing point of view, what's been interesting is that here it is 25, 26 years later, and people are still talking about that. So, you know, unless you're getting, you know, sent to jail, you can't generate that much publicity <laughs> that people will remember for that length of time. So, so I, you know, it's, again, it gets back to, if you follow your bliss, if you do what you feel is what your heart, what your intuitions tell you to do, um, then it has a way of working out that you couldn't possibly ever, uh, be able to foresee. Well, and uh, and I just I've adapted that philosophy through the whole time. Well, there's just so much right um, that comes out of that that I'd like the listeners to make note of. That that t- it seems like today's consumer more than ever likes to do business with people they like. So what came out of a you know horrible travesty of the fire and downtime and and uh, and rebuilding was something that bonded with the community employees that got to take their time to do something that was you know good um and at the same time you were rewarding them by continuing their wage so yeah there, there's there's so many pieces of that puzzle that are that just you know fit by today's standard uh give us a sense of how long you were down and then i guess the next question is when you were when you reopened, was there some uh, repayment of uh, uh, by being busy? Or sometimes what we've seen is that when people have a tragedy and they're down for a while, the only good thing is when they open, they have some tremendous sales bump. And, and part of that was maybe because people missed them so long. Did that happen to you? Yes, yes. It took 11 months to get it rebuilt. Uh, the, you know, the city inspectors are... Uh, are difficult, and uh, and the fact that um, I was having to build it up to code at that point, as opposed to when I started, uh, required a lot more plumbing and a lot more electricity. Right. Uh, you know, and so you know, looking back on it, I'm going great. I'm glad they made me do it because then it allowed the building to be uh, useful um, through to today. You know, so 25 years later, we had the. The, the the grease traps and the the double sinks and the the things that uh, make no sense at all but the because something happened somewhere they've written some rules and regulations that you have to follow um, but the other thing that I guess I I really need to talk about is is that it, it started out as a as philosophically that it was going to be a vegetarian restaurant. Um, we weren't going to uh, eat meat. We weren't going to kill animals. You know, there was a lot of ethical issues that were in play. And to be able to survive, it's great to have a heart. But at the same time, you have to remember that this is a business. And um, after the fire, I, I owed four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
So I had to make the business decision that we still wanted to be um, uh, loyal to the people who brought us um, in that we wanted to maintain a vegetarian orientation. But I decided at that point that we were really going to call it a plant-based menu. So that meant that somebody who was vegetarian or vegan had choices on his menu and didn't have to worry about it being cooked in fat that was animal. So there was a there was a, a an ethical question that was always uh, under the the statement. But at that point, after the fire, and I did you know had uh, group group thinkings and talks, I decided to add beef to the menu. And so today, you know, we have um, beef, chicken. Uh, shellfish and uh, and regular fish on the menu, but no pork. So we're staying away from the pulled pork mentality, but we're trying to make it so that the lion and the lamb can eat together. And as a businessman, I don't want to create uh, a barrier that's going to keep one out of the four or one out of the six people from wanting to come because they want to have a steak for dinner. Uh, and the other three people who want to have a vegetarian meal, so so that that was the biggest change in terms of what I needed to do to make sure that the restaurant would survive and in return I'd be able to pay off that debt. How was guest acceptance uh, to that? I mean obviously it was uh, as you said I think a wise move to broaden your base um, and did uh, did it work as you wanted or did you get some initial pushback from your you know uh, initial customers? because of the broadening? Well, yes, there, there definitely is pushback, uh, but at the same time, you have to go greatest need, greatest good to greatest need. And uh, the whole idea initially and still to this day is to try and get somebody who is not oriented toward eating a plant-based menu to try it. You know, you come out and you go, well, you know, I'm going to have the steak, but gosh, that chili relleno looks really good. And instead of it being a fried chili, it's a baked chili and it's on bean cake. And it's, you know, it's it's a lovely vegetarian vegan dish if you want it to be. And people try and go, you know, I, I could eat that. The, the hardest part is not being judgmental, not not turning your philosophy into some sort of religion that says that either you do it this way or we don't want to have anything to do with you. You really want to make sure that you can stay, that you feel comfortable about what you want to serve, but at the same time, you can try and attract and uh, broaden the horizon of other people. And, uh, and, and, and it's worked out really well. Good point. One of the other things that I, I, I've always felt very uh, proud of is, is that not only was this the pulled pork um, center of America, but it was also uh, number one in tobacco. Uh, North Carolina was famous, is famous for its tobacco. And we were the first restaurant in the state in 1982 to go non-smoking. And again, it's that same kind of mentality. What do you mean I can't smoke? And um, sort of the same thing. And I said, no, this is just, I guess what I noticed is, is that if you smoke, the cigarette smoke does not come to you. It's almost the same like particles. It goes to the person who's not smoking. So there was no way that I could have people in the same room without contaminating the other. 
So I just, it was obvious from the numbers that the majority of the people were non-smoking. Uh, so let's go with the majority. And, and then there again, by following my heart, but not necessarily the business, I created a lot of publicity and a lot of, um, and, and, and it's generated a lot of goodwill in the community. And now, of course, Chris, that's a few years ahead of your time. Oh, and, and look what it did, though. Look where we all are now. Yeah, I mean, um, nowadays you can't smoke in these public places. But I think that was a huge decision and, and an admirable decision. But then you have to understand, um, you know, we're not only talking about the pulled poor capital of the world, as Arthur said. There were a lot of people um through the 70s and 80s and, of course, before that, uh, who made their livelihood in the tobacco industry. I mean, sure. North Carolina was the heart of the tobacco industry, sure. so it, it was it was not a small thing. One of the things I was really excited about um, bringing Arthur onto the uh, this podcast is, you know, you can't, you can't look at any uh, food or food service industry news feed without seeing the term plant-based. I mean, for obvious reasons, it's... it's uh, it's a buzzword, and Arthur's had many, many years of executing that menu in a way that uh, had a lot of appeal, not only to strict vegetarians. And some of the conversations I've had with Arthur that have been really great is things he learned as a chef in terms of taking something that's plant-based, but giving it a full profile that would appeal to anybody. And I'm not talking about the fake meats out there right now. I'm talking about some real... Um, culinary skill to take a dish, like he explained his uh, chili relleno, and making it savory enough so that somebody who would might order a hamburger say, hey, this is very satisfying. Arthur, can you give our listeners, many of them who are adapting their menus to plant-based offerings, any tips in terms of how you accomplish that um, if, if you can do so? And, you know, briefly, I know it's a, it's a bigger conversation. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, you know, the the big boys know that we're all addicted to fat, salt, and sugar. So automatically, to do a plant-based menu, you don't want to add salt, fat, and sugar unless you have to to make the flavors taste good. So even though the big boys are putting in the plant-based burgers, they're full of fat, salt, and sugar. So they, they may be uh, not not killing the animals, but they're not necessarily helping their own health uh, by the way they're doing it. So the approach that I take is to go from the point of view of flavors, of what we actually know that you can taste in your palate. And of course there's salt and there is uh, sugar, but then there is uh, bitter and then there is heat and then there is sour, um, and then the umame uh, for a, a lusciousness. So if you are mindful of the idea and that by the time you finish the meal, I can feel comfortable that you had those six flavors, five of the six flavors, then you're going to walk out of there going, that was very satisfying. That was an enjoyable meal. And, and the just a quick beside would be you know from a chef's point of view i actually want you to finish the meal with something bitter because bitter you if i ask you if you want some more bitter and you go no thanks i've had enough bitter um but if i if i 
finish the meal with sugar, which is traditional, then there's no end to how much sugar you can eat or would want to eat. So bitter in this particular case would be a cup of coffee without putting the cream and sugar in it. Uh, it could be a glass of wine. It could be grappa. It could be something that's going to uh, stimulate your palate and cause you to go, that was good. You know, I'm satisfied and I've had enough. And, and I think that's a real psychological issue for a lot of us that uh, uh, certainly there's other aspects of complete proteins, putting the, the beans and the, the grains together so that you get all the amino acids. That's kind of the science of it. But the, but the bottom line is, is you've got those six flavors. How are you going to put them into the meal? That's great. That's exactly a good approach. Uh, I like ending meals with uh, coffee, but you had me at grappa. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this is a, uh, uh, it's an interesting way that you've, uh, uh, of the evolution of how now the majority really are more aware, trying to eat right, cutting back on salt, eliminating sugar, um, or, or, or at least eliminating it. So <clears throat> your concept, however, has been able to not only stand the, you know, the length of time, but prosper. Maybe you could explain a little bit about how the guest has changed from the 70s to the guest that's being served today uh, and how you've been able to evolve you know, with them. Well, again, we started out as the old hippie place. And so we, you know, we had a lot of uh, counterculture people that were eating with us to start off with. And then, um, you know, I guess thinking back on it, what's been fascinating is, is that, you know, on a Saturday night as a, as a vegetarian restaurant, we were not your number one choice uh, because usually dad will say to mom, um, let's go out for dinner tonight. I'll pay. Where do you want to go? And when you'd say, oh, women in particular who are traditional, the ones who fix the food and prepare the food and understand the nutrition of it, we were very popular with. And they would say, oh, let's go there regardless. But dad would say, gosh, I really need some protein. You know, I need a, a chicken or a piece of beef or something so that I feel satisfied. And slowly but surely, we, we evolved to make sure that dad had a choice. But then the other part of it was is that then and today we were still always looking for uh, aspects of the business that nobody else was uh, was focused on, and um, we st we were the first restaurant in Raleigh to start with Sunday brunch um, because Saturday night wasn't that popular for us because we didn't have the meat at that time. Sunday brunch became quickly our most popular meal of the week, and to this day it still is. And, um, you know, people would traditionally would go to church and then after church, they want, they were dressed up and they wanted to go out to eat. And then they would, um, come for Sunday brunch. And we, we sort of adapted a, uh, an abundance strategy, meaning that as soon as you sat down, we gave you your juice and some coffee cakes and coffee. And then we asked you what you wanted. Um, so it allowed us to for little children to be able to eat right away and elders to be able to enjoy themselves. And, and where if we asked you, would you like fresh juice? Would you like the cakes? You know, most of us would say, no, that costs too much. But if I put it in the price, it would work out. And everybody, like I say, until this day, 
And that mentality caused us to also look for other underserved uh, arenas. And so we started uh, opening for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving this past year, we served 900 people in a 120-seat restaurant, and we did another 900 meals to go out the back door, uh, which is just unbelievable. And then we opened Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and New Year's Day brunch. And, you know, we, you just look for those little markets, and slowly but surely, these these holiday meals create traditions where the grandparents are bringing in the grandchildren and we've been there long enough that the grandchildren are now bringing in their children. Mm -hmm. Um, in some ways I feel a lot like Abraham and Sarah, uh, in that we were opening uh, a place of uh, comfort and protection and, and that attitude of always trying to figure out if there is something unserved, um, has led to the real success of the restaurant as to where it actually makes its money today. It pays its bills on its day-to-day -day stuff, and then at the end of the year, the, the real profit was always being open on these holidays when everyone else is closed. So I was just going to say, today we have the full range of people. We have, we have the millenniums coming in that are you know, very uh, oriented toward organic vegetables and, and vegetarian diets. But at the same time, because we've become part of the establishment, we have the elders and, um, and the grandparents coming and they're bringing their children now. So it's, it's, it's got the advantage of being uh, full circle, I guess. I was just going to mention to Barry that we need to take a quick pause and salute because anytime you can hear of a restaurant, that's got a little over 100 seats and yet can kick out 900 meals while serving another 900 as a pickup delivery out the back door. You've just, you're setting records. So I don't necessarily want every listener to expect that that might happen to them. <laughs> However, <laughs> I do think though that every listener uh, should make note of the principles that you just laid out because that was textbook planning on how to grow with a changing marketplace. The fact of developing more meal periods, such as brunch, reaching out to a whole different family dynamic, uh, the broadening of the menu to get male and female, young and old, making holiday special, which gets the whole family thing. This is exactly what you would want people to do if they were planning on um, extending their business and growing their market as the customer changes. So, man, good for you. <laughs> well, but like I say, you know, the the first year that I wanted to open for Christmas, none of my staff wanted to work, and uh, because you know it's a holiday for them, and so I had to get uh, a lot of my Jewish friends uh, to come in and and help be supportive. And then when the staff heard how much business we did next year, I didn't have any problems getting the <laughs> staff to come in. <laughs> now, Arthur, is, is I recall we've discussed um, your restaurant. You've You've been pretty successful in terms of longevity of, of your employees. Uh, you had pretty low turnover, if, if I recall correctly. Do you, can you address that a bit? Well, you know, I think the mistake that a lot of restaurateurs or business people make is, is that they try to balance their books on the backs of their staff, meaning that there's a certain, oh, look how little I paid somebody. Um, and my attitude always is, is is that, you know, it takes maybe three months to six months before you get somebody up to speed. So the expense of, an, of changing out staff regularly ends up um, 
shorting the the customer's experience, but it also makes it harder for you to maintain your quality. So I guess early on, what I realized is is, is that really the goal is how much can I pay my staff? How much can I um, reward them for doing well? And the advantage of that is, especially, I think I was just reading that in the downtown Raleigh area, if you take the Capitol and you go one mile in each direction, there's 146 restaurants. And I know, new restaurants, and I know that there are not 146 chefs out there, and I know there's not a thousand waitstaff people. Um, so the new restaurant comes in and comes over and finds a disgruntled employee and says, I'll pay you a dollar more if you come work for me. And so the demand is there. So I've always <laughs> felt like I want to make sure that the only reason why you quit working for me is, is that you just can't stand me and not because someone else is going to offer you more money. Mm-hmm. And the advantage of that has been is, is that very few people quit working for me. I mean, I've got employees that are 35, 40 years in the tooth, so to speak, uh, but you can be fired meaning that if you don't follow the, the procedures and treat people right, then you won't work there. But, uh, but if you do, then uh, I have the advantage of that my senior staff can literally show you how we want you to do it um, and, can, and you have an example as opposed to reading some sort of manual and trying to figure it out again for yourself. And so the quick upside of that is, is that the reason why I can do um, – double, I can do 900 people on Thanksgiving, is is that, and the same thing with Christmas, is that everybody gets double pay on the holidays. And usually I give it to them in cash so that when they go home, they can see the immediate reward. And when I say, are you ready to work the next holiday? And they go, you bet, boss, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and creating that loyalty uh, because again, here I am saying that on Sunday brunch, you know, we're serving a hundred seat restaurant. We're doing 300 people week in, week out on Sunday, and now Saturday is also growing to 250 and 300 people for brunch. Is is that if one person doesn't show up, the whole thing falls apart. And instead of giving superior service, you're giving half-ass service. And then the customer, especially with social media today, just loves to talk about the bad experience that they had and very seldom do they, you know, uh, gloat on how well you did. So this is sort of the, the psychology of it, I guess. Well, it's fantastic that you have that many staff staying that long. Uh, you've built a tremendous uh, uh, base uh, because longevity is really what I know most restaurant, independent restaurant operators anyway are shooting for uh, when they're putting their teams together. Arthur, um, one of the things we we talk about with our readers, our restaurantunder.com members and our listeners is the importance of working on the business, uh, being able to step back and and analyze the finances, work on the marketing, work on the HR strategy, the menu. But also, we also temper that philosophy, understanding that successful independent operators are there on the floor um, as much as possible, too, talking to staff, talking to customers, tasting the food. You started out in this business, like a lot of independent operators, you created a job for yourself by necessity. And at some point, you found the balance between the guy who is CEO of his own business and working on the business, and I know for a fact the guy who's there on the floor, in the kitchen, uh, keeping an eye on things. Um, 
can you share with our listeners, based on your experience, where did you find the sweet spot? Where's the, the balancing act and still allowing you to, you know, have your, your morning swims and, and, and have a life? Well, that's, that's a great point. And that's, you know, again, that comes down to um, the way that you describe success. If you feel like success is based on how much money am I going to make out of this, uh, you'll never be successful because you'll make a living out of running a business and, and, and you'll do well. Um, but you won't, um, it's, it's not like you've, you've taken on a job that's got a 10 time markup. I mean, basically, you know, you're working on two or 3% in terms of the end of the year profits. So if you're not doing, you know, a couple million dollars a year, you know, must be better off to be working for somebody else if that's how you define success. If you define success by how much, how how much good did I do in the world today? How did I treat people? How did I make did I make the world a better place today? And I know that's a little pie in the sky type of thing, but there's a there's a real there's a real feeling that uh, you're not defined, you're not letting someone else define your success. You're defining it. And to be able to do that means that you do have to have a dining room manager and you, you do have to have a chef in the kitchen and you do have to have middle management in place so that you can take some time off so that you don't have to be there. Again, that comes down to taking away the bottom line profit. But but if you don't do that, then you're going to burn yourself out, and you're going to uh, have a heart attack, and you're going to you're going to die in the saddle, so to speak. So, with that said, um, I still keep a close eye on how each person is dealing with their division, and I would have a, a manager's meeting on Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock because there's no crisis happening at two or three o'clock on a Wednesday. You know, on a Friday night, a Saturday night, you know, something blows up. It doesn't do anybody any good to shame, you know, a weight person in front of a, a customer. You know, you, 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 you resolve it the best you can. And then on Wednesday, you come together and say, well, now what happened? How did this happen? Right. And how do we prevent it from happening mm -hmm. again? Sure. And if you can do that, then what you're doing is, is that you're, you're letting your management and your staff have ownership, uh, feeling that they can make a choice and not get blown out of the water if it was the wrong choice. Um, and then, therefore, they're going to pay attention and not wait for you just to tell them what to do. And that kind of micromanaging is just uh, useless from right. my perspective. Right. But what you have created, though, are some really good principles that obviously work. When people want to start working on the business rather than always in the business, uh, you started by developing a small structure, dining room manager and others. They were very clear, I heard you say, on responsibilities, and that's something that the listeners should make note of. Uh, good structure starts with clarity. Uh, and then you went right into good routine communications. If you manage by the week, and it seems like you get your key people and managers together on Wednesday afternoon to plan the week and review things, uh, then you have a much better chance of hitting the third C, which is consistency. You've been doing that really well. Arthur, um, you've, uh, after 45 years, uh, certainly, um, boy, nobody would blame you for selling your restaurant, particularly when it's still going great guns, and, and you did that recently, but um, you are certainly not somebody who is going to retire, particularly from 
food and and from the things that are important to you. So, um, you know, for our our listeners who maybe at, be at the point where they're thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to sell my restaurant and get out of the business. Um, I think there's some inspiration there that you can provide them in terms of, you know, the next act, um, which um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about if you could share with us. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. I don't think anybody, I certainly never included the day that I was going to stop in my program. You know, it was always, I'm just dealing with the next day. And um, in February of this year, of last year, February 4th, I ended up having quadruple bypass surgery. Um, And not because of my lifestyle, but because of what I inherited from my father and grandfather in terms of heart conditions. And so very blessed to have been able to uh, be born in this uh, decade uh, where the technology is so remarkable that I am survive and doing well. But at the same time, it brought me to the question of, do I want to die in the saddle doing something that I love to do, or do I want to stop and make love to my wife? And uh, this time I went with option B. Good choice. <laughs> I didn't think I, I needed to prove to anybody that I could do it. But, but one of the key pieces um, that I would reiterate to especially someone who's starting out is, if at all possible, you want to buy your real estate. And so, you know, 45 years ago, needless to say, you know, I bought my property for $68,000, which was a lot of money in 1975. Mm-hmm. But it made it so that here in, in 2019-20 that I could sell the real estate um, and not really have to worry so much about creating all the value out of the restaurant. Because the restaurant, as soon as you buy it, you know, the equipment depreciates and basically you're trying to sell a good used car. But it's still a used car. And so if there's not some incentive there, um, it's really hard to get your value out of it without uh, putting so much debt on the next operator that he can't make any money because he's working so hard to pay off you and the predecessor. Mm-hmm. So in my particular case, by being able to sell the real estate, then it becomes a mortgage payment. And of course it is the rent, but it is a fixed rent that appreciates and and holds its value after you've paid it all off. So. That's the real business decision that's being taken place. So with that said, though, you're right that I can't just stop being me. Um, And so I guess the way I put it at this point is is I used to tell people that, you know, Arthur is a really nice guy, but Mr. Gordon, he's a son of a bitch. And so you really want to deal with Arthur as much as possible. And I could have told my staff that on 1231 when I – when I sold it to the new people, that Mr. Gordon was leaving the building. And the only guy that's still around is Arthur. And he's, you know, he's happy-go-lucky at this point because I don't have the problems of HR and, you know, things breaking and so forth. But I still like my association with the restaurant. And the new owners are couldn't have been any more uh, appreciative of who and what I do. And then to sort of go full circle on this is is that about seven or eight years ago, uh, I bought a piece of real estate in Raleigh and turned it into the well-fed community garden. 
So I'm literally growing organic vegetables that I'm selling to the restaurant as to well as to other restaurants in the area. And we're doing the microgreens and the sprouts and the, the, the high-end things that are organic that chefs like to put on their plate. Um, and then in return, I'm back to, you know, making compost and weeding the garden and doing very humble uh, events that are not necessarily here to feed me, but here to feed the whole community. And that feels like something that you can do for as long as you want to do it. Well, it sounds like the circle, uh, circle of life has just worked wonderfully for you. And uh, I say um, goodbye to Mr. Gordon and uh, bless you, Arthur, and your new step with the community <laughs> garden. <laughs> Arthur, we, we like to fin finish up our um, interviews with something we call the Fave Five. I think uh, Chris may have sent you a list of the questions, but just to get a little more insight into your, your personal preferences and, and favorites, if you will. And so I'll start out here. Um, what's your favorite go-to food to, to eat? Um, when you and your wife go out for dinner, what would be the top of your list? Pizza. That's the ticket. <laughs> there you go. I love this man. <laughs> How about a favorite? You know, but it's got to be, you know, it's got to be gourmet. I can't, I can't just eat it uh, pizza. You know? <laughs> we wouldn't fuck. No, no dominoes. I hear you. They're not our sponsors, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is there a particular favorite place you like to visit or a best trip that you would like to redo? Well, I'll tell you a sweet story. Um, in, I started in... In 1970, I was in college, and I went to Europe, uh, had $100 in my pocket, and I ran out of money in Venice, Italy. And I was with a buddy, and the two of us found a job washing dishes in a restaurant in Venice, Italy, which is really what got me started in the whole nice. restaurant business. But I had this fantasy that someday somebody was going to walk in and say, gosh, these are the cleanest dishes I've ever seen. I want to see the dishwasher, right, and give me a $100 tip. And I was making $3 for the day back then. So fast forward to last year, before the heart attack, uh, my wife and I went back to Venice. We stayed in a five-star hotel on the Grand Canal. The restaurant was still there, and I went back to the restaurant, and I told the maitre d' that I had worked there, you know, 45 years ago, and I said I would like to see the dishwasher. And so the dishwasher came out, and I gave him 100 euros, because dollars <laughs> aren't what they used to be. And the guy's looking at me going, what did I do? You know, and I didn't want to tell management about it because next thing you knew, their cousin would be washing dishes that night. You know, I wanted it to be the guy that I was, you know, 50 years ago. So, so it happened, and that I would say is easily my uh, sweetest story about restaurants. Well, I hope those were the cleanest dishes that you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were that day, I bet. Um, Arthur, uh, do you have a favorite restaurant anywhere in the world? Uh, that your top choice uh, the place that you really think is the best of the best well you know I guess being 70 years of age now you I used to you know live to eat and now I eat to live 
so I'm not I'm not focused on trying to find the greatest, the best, the the most luxurious. I'm really focused on what's the one that makes me feel good. So there's a number of you know the area is just uh, is just uh, surrounded by lots of great restaurants, and um, but I don't have a particular. I okay. you know like I say I go to Toro over in Durham for pizza just because he's got a wood fired pizza and. You know, but again, it's one of those kinds of things that I know as a restaurant tour that you know it's only maybe a 60 seat restaurant, and so if you go at a normal business hour, it's going to be busy as hell, and you're going to have to wait. And I don't like to wait. Mm-hmm. So the trick of the trade is is that if you know that a restaurant is open continuously during the day, and because this is a wood fired pizza oven, it has to stay open, then go late for lunch. You know, go to any restaurant in the world at two thirty, three o'clock. It can't be busy from lunch, and it can't be busy from dinner yet. And then you have your big meal at four thirty in the afternoon, and and uh, you get to be you know king of the hills, so to speak. <laughs> is there a, a particular person, a favorite person that comes to mind, uh, influencer or mentor that uh, that is important to you? Well, I had sort of a, a, a family by marriage um, who owned the restaurant supply store in Raleigh at that time. And his son and now his grandsons are in the business. But at the time, I was telling him what I was thinking about doing and opening a restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant in the 70s. And everyone else that I talked to thought, you know, that's the stupidest idea in the world. And he sort of said, well, you know, that sounds like a great idea. And so, you know, we had no money. We had $9,000. So I went in and I bought from him, of course, and I got the, I needed to buy a refrigerator. I needed to buy a hood and I needed to buy a stove. And of course I was buying the bottom line of everything because that's all the money that I had. And so the bottom line on the stove was uh, six burners or four burners and an oven. And, uh, And I think it was $400 at that time. And so, he, so I go back into his store maybe a couple of weeks later, and he says to me, so now explain your concept. How, how are you going to do this? I said, well, I'm going to make casseroles, and we'll put them in you know, dishes, and then we'll send them out. So he says, well, what are you going to do if you're having to bake the next round of casserole, but you have to keep the round you already have warm? And I thought, this is how little I knew about the business that time. And I said, well, that's a really good idea. Um, maybe I need to get the next oven up. And I said, what's the next size up? And he says, well, that would be 10 burners on the top and two ovens. And I said, well, how much is that? And he says, well, that will be $600. And I thought, well, okay, for $200 more, that's what I'm going to do. And then it took me years before I realized that really he sold me that oven at his cost. He, you know, wanted to give me a chance, wanted to, you know, help me along my way instead of saying, well, you know, I can get the $1,200 from him now. And, of course, in return, especially after I had the fire, I ended up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with him on new equipment. So it worked out really well for him. But uh, that little bit of confidence in an, from an elder when you're first starting out just means the world. Arthur, I know you're a well-read guy, and um, so this might be a tough question, too. But um, do you have a favorite book or a passage that you like to live by? Well, you know me, Barry. It's the Old Testament, the Torah, we call it. Exactly. You know, so we read it each week, and um, there's a portion that's 
relative to this particular's lunar cycle and being kind of Jungian and feeling that we all share a collective unconscious, reading this book on a weekly basis just gives me a series of answers where most people are still trying to come up with the questions. No surprise uh, there for that answer, and uh, that was, that's wonderful. Arthur, um, thank you so much for participating in this. Uh, I, I never get tired of hearing the story, and I've even learned a few more things today. So uh, uh, from a personal level, it's, uh, it's just a great pleasure. There's tremendous experiences that you shared that our listeners can profit by, so we really appreciate your time. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us here today on The Corner Booth. Well, thank you both. I really enjoy it. And uh, as you can tell, uh, I, I'm not short of words. I've got plenty of language. And it, it was wonderful indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Hey, thanks for joining us today on The Corner Booth. Until next time, it's Chris Tripoli. And Barry Schuster. Saying thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon right here in The Corner Booth. Till then, go make it a good shift. <laughs>